0: I'm picking up reading from John 21, where we left off a few moments ago, and at verse 15, the historian says, so after they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand that another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. of all of the days of the year, none of them are so important to us as Christians as Easter Sunday. This is true because during the course of his life among us, Jesus frequently and in many different ways claimed to be God, the second person of the Trinity, living in the flesh, and he made his resurrection the chief validation of his claim to deity. Easter is important to us because Paul said, if Christ has not risen, then we are still in our sins. And there is no imaginable condition worse than that. The four historians who wrote of Jesus' life differ in their emphases and in the content of the Gospels they wrote. Some of the Lord's words and acts are recorded in only one of them, some in two or perhaps three, but very few of the things that Jesus said and that Jesus did are found in all four of the Gospels. But having said that, it's significant to notice that all four of these godly men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, devote considerable space in their accounts of the ugliest day in human history, that Friday on which the most holy and innocent of all men was brutally slain for the sins of those who would turn to God in penitence and faith, and all foretell the story the following Sunday morning, the day on which Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty. And each of them makes it very plain that that particular day, a Sunday morning, was one on which heaven was triumphantly involved in earthly affairs Because each one of them tells us that an angel was there at the empty tomb. And each of these inspired records tells us not only that Jesus' grave was found empty, but that Jesus was seen, Jesus was heard, Jesus was touched by his scarcely believing disciples. The proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are significant. They are many and they fall into various categories. For those who have bothered to study his life and teachings, the ultimate proof of the resurrection is logical or theological. The Bible tells us that death is God's punishment for sin. The realm of the dead is the ultimate abode of the lost, Jesus, holy in his character, once and always victorious in temptation, sinless in all his ways, simply and certainly could not be held in the grip of death. If the Bible did not tell us that his grave was discovered empty, we would know that he rose and returned to that glory from which he was sent to accomplish his mission. But for those who are not so easily persuaded, there are other evidences. One of these is found in the testimony of an angel One of those angels who was seen near Jesus' grave on that Sunday morning, he asked a question. He made a declaration, this representative of the living God. He asked the people who came out to attend to Jesus' body, why do you seek the living among the dead? He isn't here. The angel said, he has risen. And added to the array of supporting evidence of the reality of Christ's resurrection is the deliberately muted testimony of certain soldiers who had been posted at his grave to guard it against his disciples coming in the night and stealing his body and then claiming that he had risen. These strong men were chosen and trained for their work because of their physical size, because of their vigor, because of their fearlessness. And yet history tells us that these armed gods shook with terror when an angel was sent to move that stone, and that they were later bribed to keep quiet about what they had witnessed on that day. These men could testify, if not to the certainty of the resurrection of Christ, at least to the awesomeness of that particular day. And another kind of evidence is found in the radically changed behavior of Christ's disciples. We come to the end of the gospel with fresh memories in our minds of these men fleeing into the night when soldiers came to arrest Jesus and later cowering behind the locked doors of the upper room for fear for their own lives. But then we open the book of Acts. And we find these same men somehow marvelously transformed and now standing in the streets of Jerusalem facing those who had engineered the death of Jesus, proclaiming him to be God and his resurrection to be real. How can we account for the wonderful change in the behavior of these men if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true? They had seen him. They would go to their graves, proclaiming him to be God and the savior of those who believe. One of the reasons that they believed in the resurrection is that they had seen Jesus. John says, we have handled him with our hands. We have seen him with our eyes. We have heard him with our ears. And these times when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his crucifixion, before his ascension, are commonly called the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. These are eyewitness accounts of men who claim to have seen Christ very much alive after his crucifixion. Men who marched out into the world under the banner of the gospel, not to find fame and fortune or power and popularity of their faithfulness, but rather rejection and suffering and death. Yet not one of them recanted his testimony to have seen the Lord. Triumphant and alive after his death. In spite of the concentrated enemies of Christ and the religion that bears his name, no one has claimed to have found his body. And no one at the time or since has been able to impeach the character or the intelligence or the sanity of these men who claim to have seen the risen Christ and gave their lives to the work of telling others the good news that the one who died for our sins is alive and glorified. In the first century and in the 21st century, those who refuse to believe in the resurrection of Christ and therefore believe in the resurrected Christ refuse not because logic or historical evidence stands in their way, they refuse to believe simply because they refuse to believe. Among the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, John tells us the third of those occasions is that event found in the 21st chapter of John and about which we have already read. The first two of the Lord's appearances were in Jerusalem, in Judea, And then the scene shifts northward to Galilee, perhaps to the home of Peter, which was Jesus' home away from home whenever he was in Capernaum, the city of Peter, a town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as the curtain rises on the drama recorded in this final chapter of the Gospel of John, we see seven men sitting perhaps around a table with long silences separating the various parts of their conversation. There's a restlessness about them, as if they have been waiting all day for something to happen that did not happen. And now it's evening. Outside the shadows are lengthening as the sun settles beyond the western horizon. And then suddenly, as if announcing something that he's been thinking about for some time, one of them said, I'm going fishing. And this, as you know, is the voice of Simon, the voice of Peter. Some suggest that these are words of resignation on Peter's part. That with them, Peter was turning back away from the high calling of Jesus Christ and returning to the life that he had lived before. Jesus came walking along the nearby shores and said to Peter and others, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If this were the case, not many of us would be surprised. There was about this man an impetuousness that could be interpreted as fickleness. After all, wasn't Peter the one who tried to impose his own will on events predicted by Christ, only to be rebuked by hearing his Lord say, get behind me, Satan? And more recently, wasn't he the one who, in spite of his own claims of bravery, denied his Lord three times? If all we knew about Peter was what we read about him in the Gospels, it would be easy to agree that his statement, I'm going fishing, was the resignation of a man who had had time to think about the cost of his calling and had decided that the cost was too high. He was not willing to pay it. You and I have all seen people who seem to have placed their faith in Christ, people who have become energetically involved in the worship and the life of the church, only to slowly fade away and disappear from view altogether. If this were true of Peter, it would make us sad, but it would not surprise us. But when we look ahead from the Gospels into the book of Luke and recall the wise, courageous leadership this same man gave to the church in its earliest years, We have to look back on his words in John 21 about going fishing and consider that they indicate something other than backsliding and apostasy. And when we do that, and when we recall that Peter was a man of great energy who simply was not a man to sit still and do nothing, we realize that these words are nothing but those of a man who was bored out of his mind. He wasn't returning to the life he lived before Christ called him. He was simply going fishing. And we know that even more eagerly than before, he would leave those nets to follow Christ when Christ called. But before we leave these words, I'm going fishing altogether. Let's think about times when we've heard them or perhaps said them in our own lives. The time is a Sunday morning. The setting is a cabin or a campground somewhere in northern Michigan. A Christian family is on vacation. And that morning, children hear their father say, I'm going fishing. At home, they would hear him say, we're going to church. But on vacation, they hear him say, I'm going fishing. These are children who have heard their father talk about the things of Christ in their home. He has opened the Bible and taught them its most precious promises, its most demanding laws and principles. He has spoken to them about the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament, the Lord's Day in the New. He has confessed to them he's not sure that these two days are related to one another. But he has expressed his conviction that Christians need to take the Lord's Day very seriously. And at the least, that means joining a congregation of believers in their praise of God. But now they're on vacation. And instead of hearing their Christian father say, let's go to church, they hear him say, I'm going fishing. Those of us who are in a position to influence others, need to think about how words like this reveal what is really important to us. Peter said, I'm going fishing, and we notice in the historical record that almost immediately the six men who were with him said, we are going with you. Peter was a natural leader. He was the kind of man that other men want to be with, and other men tend to imitate and respect And follow. He was a leader in his family's fishing business, he was a leader in his community and synagogue, and he was a leader in the young church, not on the grounds of some imaginary power transferred to him by Christ, as some might claim, but simply by virtue of his magnetic personality. Peter's leadership in the earliest years of the church is clear from the first chapters of the book of Acts. In the first chapter, we find 120 believers, men and women, in the upper room, waiting for the promised coming of the empowering gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the time of their togetherness, it was Peter who stood up, we are told, and told his Christian friends that the time had come for them to have an election, to elect someone to take the place of Judas who had fallen from his position and there we read that the church accepted his advice and did what he suggested this natural leader in the second chapter of acts we find peter standing in the city of jerusalem speaking to a crowd that had been drawn by the fact that they were hearing the praises of their god chanted or sung or cried out in their native tongues and taking advantage of the opportunity it was peter who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time. And it was Peter who led the other apostles in dealing with the questions that were addressed to them on that occasion. And in the next chapter, we find Peter and John going into the temple together. There was a beggar there who asked them for alms. He was a crippled man. And we're told it was Peter who spoke and not John. And Peter said to the beggar, silver and gold, I don't have but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked. And these examples of the leadership that Peter offered to the church in his earliest and years. Peter was a natural leader. He was formed as such in his mother's womb by the hand of God. But in the course of his relationship with Christ, we he his natural gifts being fine-tuned and mellowed by the Holy Spirit. His zeal being tempered by patience. His energy by wisdom. His strength by meekness. Until by the time the transition is made from the last chapter of the last gospel to the first chapter of the book of Acts, Peter is at last ready to fulfill the high calling of Jesus Christ. You and I need that kind of fine-tuning of the gifts that God has given to us. May we be found in prayer for ourselves particularly and for one another as well, that our hearts and minds and gifts might lie so open before him that he is to pick them up as he picked up Peter's and make them eventually something beautiful in his sight and useful in the work of his kingdom. The centerpiece of this post-resurrection appearance of Christ is the conversation that he had with Peter that is recorded here. Breakfast is over. At Jesus' initiation, the two of them, Peter and himself, walk alone away from the others and the fire and along the beach. In their conversation, Jesus asks Peter three questions. Peter answers each question, and Jesus gives him three instructions. The first of the questions is Simon, do you love me more than these? These English words generate confusion in the mind of the careful student of Scripture. Because we can't be sure whether Jesus is asking Simon, do you love me more than these men love me, or do you love me more than these things, whatever that reference might be. But the Greek language, which is so much more complicated and so much more helpful than English, makes it crystal clear that it is the second and not the first question that Jesus is asking. Simon, do you love me more than you love these things. We wonder whether the Lord was referring to the men gathered around the fire, who already were prior to his call or after his call had become Peter's very close friends. Peter, do you love me more than you love these men? Or perhaps it was the fishing boats and the nets. Peter, do you love me more than you love these things? Or maybe it was the nearby community with its familiar people and streets and places. People and streets and places Peter had known all of the days of his life, for this was his hometown. Or perhaps the reference was even Peter's wife and his family. But the question was, do you love me more than you love these things? Jesus asks me... And he asks you that same question with the sweep of his arm that includes everything that is dear to us our jobs, our hobbies, our political loyalties, our friends. And he asks, Do you love me more than you love these things? Peter answered the question, but didn't quite fully answered the question when he said, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to Peter, this leader of the very early church, feed my lambs. I want you to think about that instruction for just a moment. All of you, but particularly those of you who are not yet quite convinced that we Presbyterians are right in our understanding of the covenant and the people who benefit from that covenant, and particularly the children of believers. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And I ask you to ask yourself, just who are these lambs that Jesus already regards as his own? Remember that elsewhere he speaks of these little ones who believe in me. And elsewhere he says of them, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Just whom does he have in mind? The Lord's second question was, Simon, do you love me? And Peter's answer was the same as the first. And Christ's instruction to him was, tend my sheep. Jesus is here speaking to the leader of the apostolic church. His instructions to Peter have nothing to do with those outside the walls of the church, nothing beyond the lines of the kingdom of God, and everything to do with those inside it. His sheep, his lambs, feed them, tend them. And we who think seriously about the purpose of the church in the world we live cannot ignore what Jesus says. At least the primary ministry of the church is to Christian people and to their children. The Lord's third question seems to be a repeat of the first and the second. He asked, do you love me? And for reasons that should be more clear in just a moment, we read that Peter was grieved that Jesus asked this particular third question. And he responded by saying, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Just behind the scene of this conversation in our English Bibles is an interplay of two quite different Greek words, each of which is translated love. One of these words is the word agape, a word that anyone who has grown up in a Bible-believing church and paid attention is familiar with. This is the love of John 3.16, This is the the love of love your neighbor and love God. This is the highest form of love. It is not an emotion. It is not a response to someone or something else, but rather the decision to assign value to a thing or person that otherwise would have no value. And it should indeed be translated love. The other of these two words is the Greek word philos. This is a lesser kind of love. If you and I were Greek and were speaking to one another in our native tongue, this is the word that we would use to speak of our love for people who please us, music that delights us, even such things as apple pie and beautiful sunsets and good literature. And it is not unreasonable to translate the word into our English words enjoy or like. And in some cases in the Bible would certainly make the meaning of a text clearer. But trying to bring the force of this exchange from the Greek into our own language, we might fairly translate it something like this. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter answered, Lord, I like you a lot. Jesus asked Peter a second time, do you love me? And Peter again answered, Lord, I like you a lot And then the third time, and this is the question that grieved Peter, Jesus asked Peter, do you like me a lot? And Peter answered, in effect, you bet I do. We often speak of the condescending nature of God's love for us. He accommodates himself to us and the limitations of our language on the pages of his Word. We are told in the 103rd Psalm that God remembers our frame, and he knows that we are dust. The mercy he offers, his patience with us, are signs of the condescending nature of his great love for us. And so is the compromise in the language of Jesus' questions to Peter on this occasion. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you like me? What a wonderful thing it is for us as his redeemed children to know that the great eternal God, the one whose glory and holiness and truth can barely be glimpsed by the most devout of people, knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. In this exchange between Jesus and Peter, We notice the coincidence between the number of times that Jesus asked Peter about his love and the number of times that Jesus had very recently denied Jesus. Here we're reminded of the gentleness and the kindness of the one that we've learned to call Lord. But here we're also reminded that nothing done in the most remote of places or the darkest of night is hidden from his view as it was true of Peter with his denials and their number. So it is known of us in our victories and our defeats that Christ indeed knows all things. And here we learn one of the lessons of the trials that Peter had faced in his life. He who once had professed undying love for Christ, he who in the garden had taken a sword in his hand to defend his master, is now no longer quite so quick to boast of his loyalty or to speak or to act without careful thought. This disciple, once known for his rashness, is now slow to speak and not so certain of himself as he once was. And he is now better fit for the service of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John begins by telling us the stories in which Jesus' first disciples came into his acquaintance. Their names are familiar to every student of the scriptures, Andrew and John, and we're told that when they first met Jesus, they asked him, where are you staying, implying that even at first sight they longed to be with him and not to have to leave him. And shortly after these, Peter and Philip and Nathaniel were added to the growing band of disciples. This same gospel comes to near its end in a setting of pleasant companionship with a group of seven men, including the same we find at the beginning of the gospel, sitting around a fire, early in the morning, enjoying a meal that had been prepared by the Lord, and enjoying the Lord himself. It is a beautiful picture of fellowship, of companionship, of friendship. And John closes with the scene before us of Jesus and one of his disciples walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They walk not as equals, but as master and servant, but each obviously prizing the company of the other. These word pictures remind us of something very important about the faith that we claim by walking through the doors of this church. Christianity is about truth. I trust that you know that. It's about truth delivered once for all from God to man and spread across the pages of his inspired word. Truth that is to be studied, truth that is to be obeyed, truth that is to be taught until that glorious day when the same Jesus will come back and bring history forever to an end. And Christianity is also about the church. I hope that you know that. The church established and led by the Son of God, for which Christ gave himself, into which every true believer is called, to which every Christian is to commit himself and his gifts. But before and above all else, Christianity is about the personal relationship every believer has with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the sweetest of invitations, at the end of the 11th chapter of Matthew, Jesus says, come unto me. He does not say, come into the creeds that honor me, come into the theology that is about me, but rather he says, come to me, and his promise is, I will give you rest. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd and he says of such a shepherd that the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own and they follow him. And the Lord's promise to Joshua is repeated in Hebrews as applying to all believers. The Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the kind of fellowship that Peter and his friends experienced with Christ sitting around the fire, walking along the beach. And it's the same kind of fellowship that Christ offers to us. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Let's open the door. Let's keep the door open. Let us pray. Our Father, we read of Peter walking along the shore with Jesus, talking with him. We read of Peter and his friends sitting around a fire, eating food that Jesus had prepared, enjoying Jesus' company. And we think wistfully, oh, I wish I had that kind of opportunity. And then we remember that by your marvelous grace and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do. Our problem is often not that this relationship is not available to us, but rather to our embarrassment and hurt, we fail to practice it. May this no longer be so among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.